0: Hello and welcome to another installment of Soccer Pints, your one-stop shop for all things American soccer. I'm your host, Will Clark. If you aren't familiar, Soccer Pints is an American soccer podcast where we cover everything we can about U.S. soccer, Americans in Europe, major league soccer, and many other exciting topics. Not only that, but we enjoy a nice pint or two during these chats, so pour yourself a beverage, if you're of age of course, and let's get into it. Last week, we switched things up and unveiled our first edition U.S. Men's National Team 2026 World Cup roster prediction. We had some obvious choices and a few surprises, and outside of one omission in the selections, it seemed everyone was pretty content with the overall prediction that was made. So where do we go from there, and what can you expect from today's episode? We are about two weeks away from our next Men's National Team friendly against a perennial powerhouse in Germany that's coming up on Saturday, October 14th. And while I wrapped up last week's episode by saying we would look at those October friendlies, With the rosters not expected to be released for another week, we're going to hold off on that today. Instead, we have had some incredible questions come through this week that are going to generate the majority of today's conversation. From reviewing transfers that our players have made, to who in Major League Soccer should make a move after their season is completed, to finding success for the 2026 World Cup, as well as more Greg discussion, thoughts on youth soccer development, and much, much more. But first, We have another fantastic brewery feature today. We have had some great ones recommended to us throughout this year, and this is another one that I'm really excited about. It was given to me this week, and I am so happy to feature them as I have had several top-quality beers from this brewery. Coming out of Elmira, New York, this week, our feature is Upstate Brewing Company. And since Oktoberfest is officially ending this upcoming Tuesday, October 3rd, I figured we would get one more beer featured in as a final cheers to the best party in the world. So this week, we have Upstate's Oktoberfest. This is an amber lager at 5.5% in alcohol and is brewed with Munich and caramel malts with a touch of German hops, which makes it perfect for this cooler fall weather we have been getting recently. It is really well-made Oktoberfest beer and just super fresh, clean, easy to drink, Upstate has been the premier destination for locally brewed craft beer in Upstate New York since 2011, with a diverse selection of high-quality beers that rotate on a regular basis. Owner Mark Newman gained experience from home brewing, and after moving away from the Upstate area to run a very successful construction company out in Los Angeles, he decided to return to the Southern Tier and start Upstate Brewing. Mark has always stayed at the forefront of things, whether it's been a new trend or style or just experimenting with various ingredients, but there's always been a consistent theme. Make it great and make the customers happy. Making over 50 beers per year is no easy task, but it keeps the work fun and allows Upstate to get better and better every single day. Since expanding and opening a second location up in Watkins Glen, Upstate offers plenty of space for people to come and enjoy their great beers. They are kid and dog friendly and have food trucks on site as well. They are super supportive of their community and give to many different causes too. So, cheers to all the staff at Upstate Brewing for being this week's beer feature. And if you are able to get your hands on any of their liquid, try it out. They do things right. All right. Well, to kick off this week's episode, like I said, we had some great questions come in and I wanted to make sure to cover some information as it relates to those. So, up first, I was asked, "Can you review the transfers for our US players since the start of the Premier League and grade them? Did they make the right decisions or should they have gone somewhere else?" This is definitely a great question and something we should absolutely look at. Originally, I was going to look at player performances through the first 6 weeks of the European seasons, but this is in line with that. So, Let's give out some grades to our main transfers and see if it's been a positive move or a negative one. And to clarify the question a bit for others, I am not just going to go over the Premier League players. We will cover everyone we can in Europe. But to start it off, let's look at our number one goalkeeper, Matt Turner, making the move from Arsenal backup to the top netminder for Nottingham Forest. He is now a starter in the Premier League, getting minutes, getting more experience. He continues to gain confidence in his play. What a story Turner is, going from a basic nobody to fringe MLS player to backup U.S. player to starting in a World Cup and now in the Premier League. It's an unbelievable rise for someone who didn't even start playing soccer until he was 15 or 16 years old. Pretty wild, but such a positive one for our U.S. men's national team. And the move is a resounding A++ from me. He might get beat up in some of these matches due to Nottingham Forest being outplayed quite a bit, but... I would much rather him be playing than sitting on the bench. Staying in the Premier League and with another Arsenal backup in Austin Trusty. Trusty was actually on loan last season with Birmingham City in the English Championship and was named their player of the season. He proved he could make the leap and take his game to the next level. However, he wasn't going to break through in the Arsenal lineup, so he decided to make the move to newly promoted Sheffield United. On paper, it looked like a fantastic move for him. However, he has found minutes tough to come by, but I do predict that changes are coming very soon, especially after Sheffield were just beaten 8 0 against Newcastle on the weekend, which thankfully saw Trusty stay on the bench and not be a factor in that result. Trusty should break through at some point, become a regular starter this season. And for that, I give this grade an A, as I believe Trusty has an opportunity to compete for a starting spot on our national team for the 2026 World Cup, if he continues to grow his game. The final one from the Premier League is Tyler Adams, who left relegated Leeds United for Bournemouth. An injury from the summer has left Adams on the sideline while he's been recovering. But just this Wednesday, Adams made his first appearance in Bournemouth's Carabao Cup victory, coming on as a sub for the final 20 minutes. This is progress for Adams, who could recover enough to join the U.S. in these October friendlies. It's important for Adams to get healthy and to become a starting midfielder in Bournemouth Leitner, and he will when he's fully fit. It might not be the sexy move that people hope for in going to a top six club in England, but it is the right choice, and I think Adams is going to continue to get better in his role, so this also gets an A for me. Now, the biggest move for me this transfer window is from our Captain America, Christian Pulisic leaving the Premier League and the dumpster fire of a club that Chelsea is in his rearview mirror for AC Milan in Serie A. What a perfect move this was and has been. The expectations are so high for Pulisic, but with Milan, he is free to play a style more suited to his game. He is with some top talented individuals. And for the most part, he's been a consistent contributor and a starter, kicking off his season with a couple of goals and assists. And overall, he just looks a much happier player than last season with Chelsea, who looked to be regretting their decision of letting him go. This is another A for me. Running through a f- few more here in Syria, Yunus Musa left Spanish La Liga to join Pulisic at AC Milan. And so far, Musa has been more of a role player making substitute appearances with one start under his belt. Musa is still very young at 20 years old, but you can see his talent growing even more in Milan. I might have preferred him to go to a club where he was a regular starter, but I do believe he will get there with Milan, and being with Pulisic helps. So this one gets an A- for me. Tim Weah left the French League uh, to join up with Weston McKinney at Juventus. Weah is one of those guys without a natural position. I believe he's a true winger, in my opinion, with his speed and pace on the ball, but Uv seemed content with him at a more right-wing back-roll that is actually, right now, switching back and forth with McKinney. I just talked about Tyler Adams and how people wanted a sexy move for him. This is a sexy move for Tim Weah. And while it might end up being positive, I think he should have gone to a different club to earn more consistent minutes and to keep developing his game. It's not a bad move at all. It's still really positive. But he gets the first non-A grade for me. I'm going to give this one a B. Let's rattle off a few more names and grades and jump into the next question. Brendan Aronson made the move from Leeds United to Union Berlin in the Bundesliga on loan. I like the move to the league, but not particularly the club. I think Aronson needs more development. I think he needs to get more strength on the ball. I'm not sure Union Berlin's style fits his play, and I have to give this one a C. It's part of the reason I've left Aronson off of our 2026 roster in that first prediction. I see this one hurting him more than helping him, unfortunately. Since it is just a loan deal, he could find himself a better situation for next season. Jordan P. Fox left Union Berlin on deadline day in order to find more opportunities and joined Borussia Mönchengladbach on loan where fellow American Joe Scally is. Fox scored in one of his first appearances, so hopefully he can continue to sto- score and get his name back on our roster radar. I give that one a B. Haji Wright, a reminder again. World Cup goal scorer, Haji Wright. He made the move from Turkey to the English Championship with Coventry City. Fantastic move for a striker looking to get an opportunity in a tougher league, and he's setting himself up for the future. He's had a bright start with Coventry, and he will be looking to help them earn promotion to the Premier League for next season. I give this an A+, as I believe, and I might be the only one who says this, but I believe Wright can continue developing into a national team regular. Over at PSV in Netherlands, we have had three national teamers join the squad this season. Serginho Dest immediately has become a starter and is getting minutes. He gets an A-plus for his move. Ricardo Pepe gets an A for his move, even though he is finding it tough for minutes due to consistent scoring from the strikers that are in front of him. But he still added like five goals in six matches. So right now, Pepe is a super sub at the moment, but it's been a great move. Malik Tillman, however. Is struggling to find time. And he just overslept over the weekend, which absolutely can't happen. And he was left out of the squad. That's not going to help him at all. I give the grade for him a D. Lack of minutes. It's going to hold off his development back until he can turn things around. I just don't like it. Um, I, I thought he could have could have gone somewhere else and and just really made more of an impact rather than a bigger club like PSV. So he gets a D. Finally, Gaga Slonina left Chelsea on loan for the Belgium league where he is getting regular starting minutes at 19 years old. I like the move for anyone who's young and needs minutes, even if it is a so-called smaller league. Slonina can eventually be the U S men's national team. Number one goalkeeper. Whenever Matt Turner decides to ever call it quits, he's still only 29. Uh, so I give this an a for developmental reasons, strictly all in all, it's been a successful transfer window for the Americans in Europe. Now, moving into the next question, it is similar, but who in MLS needs to make a move once the season is over? I've been a vocal person when it comes to being on our national team and testing yourself at the highest level. That means playing in the best leagues in the world, experiencing European soccer, and growing your game. Matthew Hoppe is an example of a player who went to Europe and now finds himself back in MLS. And while it might look like he's taking a step back in his career, he needed to find regular minutes and is scoring goals for San Jose at the moment. But two guys immediately stick out to me with this question, Jesus Ferreira and Brandon Vasquez. Now, let me be clear on this and apologies to those that this might offend, specifically FC Cincinnati fans. Ferreira should absolutely make the move to Europe. And if he does and finds success, there will be no doubting his ability to be a national team player it's only going to propel him further up in the depth chart. Now, Vasquez, on the other hand, I don't rate him highly. I think he is one-dimensional, and I don't think his game translates well to the international stage. I think he is in a great spot in MLS, but making a move to Europe for him, I don't see it being positive for his game. I hope I'm wrong about that, but I haven't seen enough for him to feel confident in a move. So who might be some others currently playing in MLS that could represent our national team that would benefit from a transfer? I named a lot of them last week. Miles Robinson absolutely needs to if he wants to continue to compete at our center back spot. From our under 20 World Cup squad, I named Cade Cowell, Brandon Craig, Quinn Sullivan, Jack McGlynn, maybe Diego Luna, Brian Gutierrez. I think it's too soon for someone like Drake Callender who's starting for my inner Miami this season. And it seems like the smart play at the moment to stay there. His teammate, Ben Kramashi, He looks like he might end up getting a lot of European interest, and he could be another one to watch out for. Listen, over the years, we have seen guys like Jordan Morris, Paul Areola, Walker Zimmerman, Christian Roldan, and several others who have played in the MLS, and they still get national team call-ups. It is a path for people to grow and develop, but for this 2026 cycle, we need everyone playing at the highest level possible. Maybe I'm one of the few who just don't see MLS being a top-rated league in the world. For me, that's always going to be in Europe. My mind will never change on that. And that's why I encourage players to go overseas and test themselves. I'm sure there are other names I'm missing out right now, but we have to move into the next question. So let me know if I miss someone who you think should make a move. Next question. What do you think is the key to finding success at the World Cup and what will make the U.S. a success at the World Cup? Hey, I really liked seeing this question after making the initial roster prediction last week. 2026 is going to be a different World Cup. Similar back in 1994, ironically, also in the U.S., there were 24 teams in the competition with six groups of four. And four of those third place teams in those groups still made it to the 16 team knockout phase compared to the 32 teams that we have been seeing and used to since 1998, we're only first and second place in the groups actually advance. 2026 is going to be like 1994 except with 48 teams competing in 12 groups of 4. First and second place automatically move to the knockout stage and then the eight best third place teams also advance to the knockout round where That's going to increase to 32 teams rather than the 16 teams that we've been used to. In my opinion, this is going to lead to a little bit more of a watered down tournament. And I know that was a lot of math, so apologize. But with that being said, let me answer this two part question What do I think is the key to finding success at the World Cup? Here's that word again continuity. However, We need to empower our players to play their games and their styles, being creative in play, not feeling like they can't make a mistake or have to play a certain system that confines them only to a certain way of playing. We need to be structured, of course, but we need to let our most talented generation of players in U.S. soccer history play to their level and not be limited by a manager system or tactics per se. What will make the U.S. a success at the World Cup? Believe me, when I say this. Winning the World Cup will make the U.S. a success at the World Cup. That should be the expectation. Look at previous tournaments. Morocco just made the World Cup semifinals. Russia made the quarterfinals back in 2018 while they were hosting. Costa Rica made the quarters back in 2014 when it was in Brazil. Paraguay and Ghana made the quarterfinals back in 2010. Do I need to keep going? Results at a World Cup are unexpected at times, but when you host, it puts you on a different stage. Expectations should be higher, and if that creates too much pressure for you as a player, then you shouldn't be playing. You should be saying the exact same thing I am. The U.S. can win the 2026 World Cup. That's my expectation, and I believe it can happen. Is it realistic? Maybe not right now, but with the talent and the ability We can make it happen on any given day. I think getting to the quarterfinals for me is a minimum expectation, and getting to that point shouldn't necessarily be viewed as an achievement. We are better than that now. And I know rankings mean absolutely nothing when it comes to FIFA, but we're currently sitting at 11th in the world. Why can't we go further and make the semifinals and finals and set the world on fire by winning it all? We need to continue building the continuity in this current player pool while adding new talent along the way to integrate that in and make this squad unstoppable. But for success for me is winning this entire tournament. All right, heading into the final question for today's episode, and it's somewhat piggybacks off the last question because if I truly think we should or could win the World Cup, That means we also have to have a leader who can take us there, right? I was asked more than one question about Greg this week, and I'll save some others for next week. But today, I picked out, do you honestly think Greg makes it to the World Cup as our coach? What if he loses next summer in Copa America or the Nations League? Is he set to lead this team no matter what? I made some enemies over the last two weeks or so saying Greg could end up going down as the best manager in U.S. history. It would only mean that if he led this team to success that it has never seen before. Winning Copa America next summer or the World Cup in 2026 would certainly do that. Winning the Nations League or Gold Cup means nothing to me outside of bragging rights. Do I honestly think Greg makes it to the World Cup? I think our players are too good to truly allow it to unravel to the point where the Federation has no choice but to fire Greg. I think an embarrassing performance at the Copa America next summer certainly sets the stage for his removal. And if we are to remove a leader before the World Cup, it would have to be no later than next summer. You would need a new coach to come in and have two years to get the squad together and having success the way that I expect as, again, Winning the 2026 World Cup is my expectation. However, I honestly believe Greg will be there. And if it didn't change after 2022, it ain't changing this year, ain't changing next year or before the World Cup. I honestly believe a different manager, someone who has experience with the type of talent that we have in our group, someone who has more creativity in their attacking methods, which really is one of Greg's main downfalls with his final third or lack thereof of the of the pitch. If we had a different manager, I would say we could elevate to a top five squad in the world right now. I believe we are missing out on a big opportunity to take that leap on the global stage by sticking with Greg, and I think we're going to see him exposed in his systems and tactics when we face Germany and Ghana in two weeks. All right, thanks again for the questions. I appreciate them, and I love when we can have a full conversation around them. Please keep them coming. On to the final thought of the week, which was actually from a question I got from someone while out last weekend. It was about my thoughts on youth development of soccer in the U.S. What should kids be playing? How much should they be training? Is there too much when they are little? As I have mentioned and said, but. For those of who who are unaware I've been fortunate enough to help coach this fall with my local Wilmington Hammerheads club in town specifically with their academy age players which essentially is under seven to under 10 year olds I will also add for transparency that what I am about to say is my own thoughts and opinions and has nothing to do with the club itself. however, when thinking about the response to this question I thought about myself growing up what I played how much I played why I played and, More. I fell in love with the game of soccer at a very early age, probably three or four years old. I couldn't wait to join a local YMCA team to get on a pitch and play. All I wanted to do was score goals. And I remember before my first game, my dad said something to me that he still regrets to this day. And he reminds me regularly of it whenever we get together and talk soccer. He said, Well, I will give you $100 if you score a goal today. Now, he said more to me than just that, but all I heard was, "If I score a goal, I am getting hundred dollars." And in my head, I also thought that meant for every single goal, I'm going to get a hundred dollars. Twelve goals later, my dad had this look of horror on his face when I came off the field and said, "That's twelve hundred dollars." That was all the motivation I needed. Then the feeling of scoring all of those goals, you know, beating other kids, I became an addict of soccer, and it just never has stopped. Now, for the parents out there, and I have been guilty of this myself, you shouldn't have to bribe your kid to motivate them, but hell, it worked for me, so if that's the incentive that you want to throw out to your kid and it fuels their fire, by all means. I didn't know what $100 was back in 1989, so I don't know if I ever got it, but soccer in general is much different 30 to 35 years later since I was a kid, but all I wanted to do was kick a ball after school. Right into the backyard or somewhere in the neighborhood, getting a little pickup game in with all the neighborhood kids that we could find. That's all I wanted. Once I progressed into a more structured club level and started practicing two to three, four times a week, games on Saturdays, ODP practices on Sundays, it just became a regular thing. And I'm sure parents and onlookers used to say that that was too much at the time. I felt it was never enough. I wanted to play soccer rather than go to school. I felt five days of class was too much when I would hear about kids in Europe that got to live at clubs and practice every day and go to school at the same time. That's what I wanted for myself. Now my daughter is eight years old, my oldest daughter, and she's training three nights a week, three hours a week. She gets skill training and fundamental training around the game and how to play the right way structurally. She gets technical on the ball training to work on her foot skills on a more individual basis. And she gets some open play training called street soccer where everyone gets to just play. And then she plays games on Saturdays. Do I think it's too much? Absolutely not. In my opinion, it's the right amount. Especially when she comes home from school and heads right out to our backyard to work on her soccer skills. I love it. Sure, it seems like a lot, but if your kid is passionate about it and enjoys the game, there's no such thing as too much. Do I think it's important that they play other sports too? I do. I think it allows for different ways of thinking and learning athletically. Again, for me, seeing my daughter take things from what she has learned playing basketball and lacrosse and apply them into soccer, it's helped elevate her more. If she didn't have those in her life and, and and playing those, but talking to her about crossing over somebody on a basketball court is the same as cutting back on someone in soccer. You just have to apply it the right way. The confidence that these kids get from small wins is incredible. You have to be able to channel it the right way, of course, but you'll never hear me say, it's just way too much for these kids. Kids these days are glued to their pads or televisions more than they are outside. Sports also gives kids a realistic outlook on life itself. You're going to fail. You will struggle. You won't be the best. You have to work hard. You have to keep trying. You have to work with others to accomplish goals. You have to communicate. You learn discipline. You get to taste success. You problem solve to get more success. You perfect your craft. You test yourself. There's just so much that sports can give to you. And for me, soccer gives you more than any other sport. Maybe I'm biased. And it's demanding, sure. It's time consuming, sure. But it is all worth it. There's never too much. I know when I grew up, Adidas was the biggest soccer brand out there for kids. And A-D-I-D-A-S stood for All Day I Dream About Soccer. I believed that as a kid. That was life. I wish all kids felt the same way. There are some out there that do. As parents, onlookers, whoever, we are going to have different opinions and thoughts. And this specific final thought of the week, and that's okay. Some kids develop later than others. They develop their love for the sport or sports later than others. I just mentioned Matt Turner not even playing until his later high school years. It's okay. I think the youth development in soccer across the U.S. has grown so much since I was a kid. I wish I had what is available now to kids that's available. uh, You know, I, I I wish what kids have now is something that I had at an early age. Soccer has grown since the 80s and early 90s, especially in America. Just encourage your kids to love a sport. Really, anything. Doesn't have to be a sport. And just embrace it. Just like this Oktoberfest I'm drinking today. It is all worth it. And with that, that's it for today's episode. Today was fun. Always appreciate the questions that have come in. And again, a reminder that if you have a question for the show or would like a specific topic to be discussed on the show, please send me a message on Instagram or email me directly at will.clark at thesoccerpints.com. And if you disagree with me with anything that I've said or continue to say, Do the same and let me know. Next week, hopefully we have the roster for our October friendlies and can dive deeper into what those matches against Germany and Ghana will look like. Big time thanks again to Upstate Brewing for being our beer feature this week. Love the Oktoberfest. Wish it didn't have to end. Until next time, cheers, my friends.